are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, we are picking up with step number 24 uh, with paragraph number 10. And we've been discussing uh, St. John's understanding of meekness, of simplicity, and guilelessness. All, I think, so important certainly in terms of our understanding of the internal life and the things that we struggle with, uh, but also an important preparation for the next step, which is on humility, that uh, all of John's writing is to make us more attentive to what's going on within us, the kinds of thoughts that we have, how we engage each other, how uh, we can be calculating and uh, in our thoughts and words. And, uh, and so moving towards Again, this kind of honesty, truthfulness in our living, in our speech. And uh, so these are, even though they're some of the smaller steps, they're very important. So again, we are on page 177, if you're just joining, with paragraph number 10. Still a few, few more coming in. Number 10, a gentle soul retains words of wisdom, for the Lord will guide the meek in judgment, or rather in discretion. So the gentle soul is one that is not agitated, and so is going to be able to maintain one's focus upon that which is good and that which is from God. Uh, and so when we immerse ourselves in things that agitate the mind and the heart, uh, we not only become distracted, but we can lose hold of what is really essential to our day-to-day -day living, the knowledge of what is true, an insight uh, into the reality of a set of circumstances and how uh, God would want us to respond to them. And even in maybe in a more important way, we lose sight of God. And uh, when the heart becomes agitated. And so when there is meekness, uh, when we are able to have anger or frustrated tempered by love, we're able then to hold on to discretion, this ability to discern uh, again, the realities of the circumstances around us. Uh, 
and so that we aren't simply reacting based upon uh, our emotions or what another is doing or not doing. And uh, you can gather, I think, how important this is then in our day-to-day -day living of maintaining a kind of uh, internal stability uh, of mind and heart. And uh, this would affect everything in our life, you know, uh, how we enter into our work, our day-to-day -day conversations, the choices that we make, everything. Uh, it's not that our emotions are unimportant. They often, as we've talked about, reveal a great deal to us. Uh, but uh, if we do lose that discretion, uh, then we can act upon them indiscriminately and then make the, often make the wrong decisions. Number 11, the upright soul is a fellow lodger with humility, but an evil one is a daughter of pride. So an upright soul, someone who's living uh, a righteous life where there is rectitude there, they are seeking to live in the truth, uh, to live an upright life, uh, then they become a fellow lodger with uh, humility that uh, humility, as we've said, is truthful living. And so a person who's seeking to live an upright life, to live in accord with the will of God, is going to seek to be friends, as it were, uh, with, with humility or to foster uh, the presence of humility within, within the heart. Uh, an evil soul, though, is the daughter of, of pride, that uh, pride is what distorts our, our vision and uh, makes it impossible for us, as we've talked about, uh, to repent, because it often distorts our, our view of what is good and evil, of, of reality itself. And uh, so it makes it very difficult for us to turn back to God or to offer or to seek forgiveness from others. And uh, so it can draw us from simply being sinful uh, into participating in, in evil because our vision can become so darkened and distorted. Number 12, the souls of the meek are filled with knowledge, but the, an angry mind is a denizen of darkness and ignorance. So a meek soul is going to be filled uh, with the, the knowledge of God and the things of God. Again, this kind of stability of mind uh, where we are seeking to live in the love of Christ is going to allow us to maintain our focus upon him. And uh, But the, the moment that we give ourselves over to, to anger, uh, again, there's this distortion of, of vision uh, that we find ourselves then plagued with ignorance. And uh, this is... You know, it's we see the danger of our own day. There's so much anger within the world. And and so often we see, you know, parts of reality that uh, contribute to conflict within the world. But we don't see all of it. And, uh, and so our initial response often is one of reaction. And we've talked here a little bit before of James saying the anger of man does not bear fruit that is acceptable to God. 
that, uh, and this is one of the reasons that it often leads us to react uh, to things that we don't see clearly. And so to act wrongly, to choose wrongly and to uh, react and often lash out at others. I think I mentioned here once before when 9-11 happened, we had uh, a professor from Franciscan University. He, he, he no longer teaches philosophy, but uh, he, he came and gave a talk to the university students on the, the place of the philosopher in an age of terror and how important it is to have those who have the capacity uh, to suspend judgment and to be able to think things through. And, uh, and one might say, you know, what, what is the place of the person of faith in an age of terror or uh, an age of chaos? And one would say it's even more uh, important that we would think with God that we would seek to purify our hearts, to form our consciences in such a way that we're not only reacting on an emotional level to everything that's going around, on around us. And it's pretty difficult not to, uh, because so often it can be not just frustrating to us, but horrific. Uh, and, and yet this is what we are called to, to allow ourselves to be guided by the spirit of truth and a spirit of love and humility. And, uh, and it becomes even more important, the worse things become. And so uh, the depth of our prayer uh, must become uh, ever so great at times like this. We almost have to forcibly slow ourselves down and ask ourselves, what, what is the most important thing for us to be attentive attentive to i've been reading hezekias the priest from the first volume volume of the philokalia and this morning uh he, he talks about uh in order for a kind of watchfulness to emerge within us that our prayer must be unremitting and we must be constantly straining forward uh toward god and we often don't think about things in this way. I mean, so, so often as we see prayer as a discipline among other things or a part of our life, rather than that which shapes everything for us, becomes the lens through which we view life itself, then we are not going to see uh, the truth, that we are going to be, we're going to have our blind spots and hard spots and uh, and so often make the wrong decisions about things or be simply driven in our heart by anxiety or chaos or depression. And so this is a time uh, not so much for action as it is for turning in a greater way toward God, both through repentance and through prayer. Uh, Victor writes, Jesus was often angry with the Pharisees and the scribes. True. And part of uh, uh, what we've been talking about is that anger in and of itself is an emotion and often is revelatory. It does reveal a certain truth. And this is why purity of heart is needed and why love is needed in order that one's actions might be guided. 
uh, by the truth. And so when Christ is engaging the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, it is with that clarity. And often what he's responding to is a kind of harshness towards the other or a pride that has become so solidified, calcified, that it becomes impenetrable, that there was this uh, hardness of heart towards him, but also a malicious spirit that grew to the point where they wanted to destroy him, uh, that, uh, that they became locked into this kind of vision of religion that uh, was driven by ego more than by the spirit of God. And so much so that Christ uh, said, they're like uh, whitewashed tombs. And if you remember to come across or touch a dead body was to be made ritually unclean. And, uh, and so he's saying, even to come into contact with them uh, is like coming into contact with a, a tomb, you know, outside, you know, in the sun, in, in that area, they would glisten, you know, being whitewashed, but inside there's corruption and darkness and that which is rotting. There isn't life, but death. And uh, and the same thing with the overturning of the, the uh, tables in the, the temple. If you remember, we've talked about this before, that they were fleecing the poor who were coming there to worship. And they were doing this in the court of the Gentiles. So instead of being a light to the nations, they were being something quite awful that they had chained, people could not use their own money. They had to use the temple coinage and at an exchange rate that was exorbitant. And they could not bring their own animals for sacrifice. They had to use unblemished ones that were provided by the temple. And at, again, at a, at a high cost. And so for the poor coming uh, to participate in the Passover, you know, it, the, what they were doing was taking advantage of them. And Christ could see this, that here in the temple that was to be a house of prayer, they had turned it literally into a den of thieves. They were ripping off the poorest of the poor. And uh, so, you know, people often bring up the anger of Christ. And I think we often bring it up as a justification for what we think is righteous anger on our part. But uh, very few of us perhaps ask, you know, is my heart pure? And has my, you know, heart been transformed by the grace of God that I'm not simply responding uh, and reacting to what others have done to me uh, out of a desire for revenge or simply driven by resentment. And, you know, John will guide us through this more deeply as we continue uh, to look at simplicity and guilelessness as well. Number, let's see, number 13. An angry man and a sarcastic man met one another, and it was impossible to find a true word in their conversation. Unveiling the heart of the former, you find frenzy. Looking into the soul of the other, you see knavery. This, I've been meditating a lot upon this, uh, just because it's a, sort of an interesting 
uh, thing. He's talking about two individuals together that really create this scenario that's pretty dark. You know, someone who's filled with a kind of sarcasm. And he says, in this, uh, you find within their heart uh, a kind of frenzy. You know, there's there's no peace. There's only a kind of ridicule of the those around them. And with uh, the one who is, uh, I'm sorry, the angry man is filled with frenzy, and the and the sarcastic man is filled with knavery. That uh, you know he's takes delight in the twisting of the truth. And so when you put these two together, you can't find a true word that uh, reality gets so twisted up and uh, and it can be such a destructive force, whether it's in the workplace or family or religious community, that these two individuals, the, the angry individual and the sarcastic one, uh, when they get together, they can feed off of each other. And there can be, again, a kind of malicious envy that develops or uh, uh, a kind of twisting of the truth, the gaslighting of, of people where other individuals around them begin to wonder, you know, am I crazy? Am, am I not seeing things in the right way? Uh, because it's said with such anger and force by one and by a twisting of the truth by another that it becomes very difficult uh, for most people to navigate that. And uh, again, you know, this can be done in a wholly unconscious fashion, but nonetheless, it can be incredibly destructive to love and uh, to, to relationships as a whole. And so I've, I find myself going back and, and thinking about this one a lot, uh, just because it's, it, can, it can destroy what is good and beautiful in an instant, or what has been hard won. You know, if you think about, you know, creating peace in a family or in a workplace, or again, a religious community, you know, there can be all this, you know, goodness and richness and, and love and charity. And where this kind of spirit begins to take over, it can destroy that in a, a very brief period of time. And families can fall apart and, you know, as well as a work environment. Number 14. Simplicity is a constant habit of soul that has become immune to crafty thinking. And so simplicity, you know, we haven't talked a lot about this, but, you know, when our life is not cluttered on multiple levels and our mind is not cluttered on multiple levels with either material goods or frenetic activity, uh, uh, then we are able uh, to avoid this kind of crafty thinking because then we become calculating about how to manage circumstances and how to manage people and how to protect what is ours or to get what we want. Whereas a simple person is not going to 
be overly attached to anything except the will of God and loving God. And so that they're going to be able to make their way through this, especially when it has become a habit of mind and soul, uh, without becoming calculating. And uh, you remember we talked, Therese has that little quote, love does not calculate. And I think John is talking about the same thing here, that when there is true love and it is directed toward God, and then one sees others through that relationship with God, then one is not calculating and trying to manipulate others uh, to get them to do what we want them to do or to change their way of behavior simply uh, or their way of thinking simply to suit us. You know, that we don't lose sight of the person. And, uh, it's interesting, you know, I think even in talking to a lot of priests these days, both in the East and in the West, uh, because of the, you know, the uh, lack of priest and often the multitude of duties that they have and responsibilities, multitude of parishes even, uh, that sometimes they're, uh, they, there's an experience of isolation that takes place there and the, they begin to feel like they're treated as objects to be used, you know, to fulfill a certain role and uh, where they're no longer seen as, as persons. And, you know, the church can be run very much like a corporation and typically it's run like a bad corporation. You know, we're just not good at it. And so if we aren't rooted in, in God and, uh, and there isn't the simplicity of soul, then how we go about our day-to-day -day life, what takes place within our church, uh, how we engage individuals within that community, and the things that priests are attentive to on a given day, you know, whether it's their prayer life and what bish bishops are attentive to. Uh, uh, especially their, their priest, uh, then if, if we are attentive to those things, then all is, is going to be well. You know, in the eyes of the world, it's always going to be something that seems lacking. But if we lose sight of that, then things are going to crumble very quickly. It's not going to endure. Uh, somebody has their hand up. Rory. Uh, you're muted or were you typing it out? Unmuted now. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Hey, great. Uh, good seeing you back. It's Thanks. wonderful in Arizona. Um, so when you talk about anger and sarcasm, a lot of times I see that as like the tip of the iceberg and all this calculation you're talking about is the foundational base. And when I sit in faith in Christ and humility and patience, eventually they calm down and they reveal what's at the base. Mm -hmm. I got to take whatever they're reacting to it and not react to it. So could you please comment on that? Right. And, you know, I think we've tried to talk about this a number of times and it's worth repeating, you know, it's, uh, and really it's, it's in psychoanalysis that I've heard it spoken of a, not, a lot, which is this ability to suspend judgment, uh, 
to listen and to attend to what others are saying and how they're saying or what they're not saying. Again, not in a calculating way, but giving full attention to the other. Uh, whereas we often in our encounters with others will focus upon something in particular that they say uh, that is a source of irritant to us or that gives rise to anger within us. And when we are able to suspend that judgment and to, to listen uh, with humility uh, as one who is seeking the truth. And, and not only uh, the truth that is on the surface, you know, a person's anger, but what is giving rise perhaps to that anger or frustration or the circumstances that they're in that are leading them to ask certain things from us or not be able to respond to us in the way that we would want them to or in the timely fashion in a timely fashion uh that's where you know living in this kind of peacefulness simplicity meekness humility all of it becomes very important uh, that we don't lose sight of the other. And again, when we are holding on to a lot, when we lack that simplicity, uh, then I think that push, pushes us towards that kind of calculating spirit where we begin to, to calculate more about how we need to prepare ourselves to engage this person. What I'll say if they say this and voice it hard not to go down that path, uh, to want to be prepared for every scenario. And uh, because often that isn't obviously driven by charity, or again, this desire to listen to the other and to understand, okay, why are they responding or not responding? Uh, or why are they, they anger, angry? but we are moving more towards the defensive position. Whereas simplicity, I think, prevents us from moving there. That if we aren't holding on to our own honor, let alone the things of this world that we are often attached to, or if we're not holding on to our will, uh, what we want for ourselves, then we aren't going to be moved uh, even when a person is coming at us and, you know, seems to be inflamed with anger and being insulting, we can maintain a kind of peacefulness of heart and be, be able to engage them out of it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to alter uh, how they engage us, but it can allow us to maintain a kind of peacefulness of heart where we are not tempted then to give it back to others with both barrels to give it back in double and that's what we often do you know somebody comes at us and insults us and then we you know to boom you know we're giving it back to them you know with greater force and uh again it's a defensive position and it's certainly not the the position of simplicity or or humility or love and uh and so this is, you know, where John is talking here about a habit of soul. I don't think we want to pass over that as, 
uh, too easily, that creating a habit of mind or a habit of soul takes years to do, uh, especially if the opposite habit has been deeply formed in us over the course of decades or perhaps our whole life, you know, where we have so many blind spots and hard spots because of our focus on the self and on the ego, then to try to li live in this simplicity or meekness or try not to react simply out of emotion can be very difficult. It can take uh, years to establish that habit. And I think I mentioned to you a psychiatrist who, in, in one of his uh, clinical works, was uh, going to the, the prison. And, you know, he went in there, he said, with grand ideas, you know, about what he could do in his work with the prisoners. And the person who was responsible for him, his supervisor, said, you know, it typically will take like five years just to alter like personality or perspective, even in the smallest way to remove some of those blind spots or hard spots or to open a person up to view things in a different way. Uh, that, you know, when, when personality is formed and shaped, you know, especially once we reach a pretty, you know, uh, uh, a certain age, it's not an easy thing to, to alter. The habit of soul, too, as John John is telling us. So this, you know, uh, the, the way that we respond on like every level of who we are as as human beings. Let's see here. Kate writes, "I find that my attempts at simplicity of life can become rather complex in trying to let go of things in my life." I'm flooded with distractions that seem necessary at the time, but later I realized that it was temptation away from simplicity. I find it hard to navigate towards simplicity, the complexity of simplicity. I think that's the problem. It has become complex for us. I think for previous generations, uh, you know, were compelled to live in a kind of simplicity. Uh, because of want and need. And it wasn't an easy thing for them. Uh, you know, that, you know, we can romanticize uh, poverty, but it's not a romantic thing for one who is poor and who grows up in that poverty. And so to move in this direction uh, of, you know, poverty of spirit, of simplicity, uh, is not an easy thing for us. Uh, you know, it's not complex in the sense of letting go of attachments, but it becomes complex for us because we have it in our mind that so many of these things are important for our identity as human beings, that our work, our education, what we possess, uh, how many books we have in our library. Uh, you know, that's, that's always the terrible thing. You know, you were getting books before we read, finished reading one, and we think this next book is going to sort of clarify this truth for us, and I've got to have it. And it, then it's three years later, we find it in the bookshelf still wrapped in the plastic. And, uh, and so, you know, to move towards the simplicity on multiple levels, material is hard enough. But I think simplicity of life in terms of our 
engagement of the world around us, where we don't crowd out silence and solitude that allows us to listen to God on a very deep level and or to listen to what's within our own hearts in regards to our own desires. Uh, you know, often there is a kind of uneasiness that we experience, a dis-ease, if you will, uh, that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, we plow our way through, you know, day after day. And, you know, sometimes we'll try to change external aspects uh, of our life, but it doesn't really alter anything. But the root of that dis-ease is more often tied to this lack of simplicity of focus upon God. And that, that relationship with, with God becomes that which gives meaning and purpose to our life, but to everything that we engage in, whatever our station in life is, married, single, priest, religious, that you know when we are living our life in Christ, then that's when we have peace. Uh, St. Isaac the Syrian said that the person who loves God only finds peace in God. And so I think that's a, a sort of a radical simplifying statement that if you love God, you're not going to find peace in the world or in anything in the same way that you find in him. And all of a sudden, that complexity of simplicity that we, you know, or surround simplicity with disappears. And we think, you know, it's, it is simple. It is about that relationship with God and not allowing him to become an abstraction. And having God be uh, the, the one that we alone have eyes for, if you will. And, you know, where we long, begin to long for prayer more than, than anything. You know, this desire to be with him and in his presence and focused upon him. So, you know, these little, it's, this is why it's valuable to slow down in the, these readings uh, and to contemplate what the fathers are saying. Because I've often had people tell me that, you know, okay, you know, I, I love what you post and, you know, I love the fathers and there's great beauty to them. But when the rubber hits the road or sometimes when they say something that is really jarring, uh, like some some of these things that we're reading, then it's like, how am I supposed to live that? You know, is this only for the person who can master themselves and strip themselves of everything in this world? Uh, you know, and so not get married or not have a job or, you know, something along those lines. And the answer to that question is no. Uh, but I think that's often where our minds go. Uh, it's not allowing those things in our life, again, to be abstracted from our relationship with God. You know, those who are married, you know, the, the, you know, their love for God is only going to deepen their love for each other. 
and you know it's only going to draw them closer together and deepen that bond when that's a mutual reality between the two of them and uh and so you know, the, the living the ascetic life or the life of prayer or providing a spouse with the opportunity to take time for prayer is the greatest gift that you can give them if you understand, you know, where they're going to find their strength. And uh, intimacy and solitude are tied together. You know, married couples need times of silence and solitude in order that they might step into that relationship and see the things that they need to see and hear the things that they need to hear. Um, especially when, you know, some of the romance might call a little bit and, you know, it's, you find out that they're not the funniest person in the world that you thought they were or uh, the most energetic or creative and, you know, that, you're in it for the long haul. You know, what is it that's going to hold you together? You know, is it your sparkling personality or or what? Or is it going to be something much, much deeper? So Anthony writes, some of it you learn by experience. I think most all of it. I think in Newman, I've mentioned this, said, you know, we make our way to heaven backwards. We take a step forward, we met, we screw up. And then we have to take two steps back backwards when we realize that we've gone down the wrong path. And there's some truth to that. I mean, I think we we learn through uh, in the hard way, you know, this experience where uh, it is simply ego driven or where we are being calculating or where we thought we saw the truth of a set of circumstances and acted harshly towards another, made a judgment and then realized, gee, I saw nothing. And I destroy, I, I was part of something that destroyed a relationship or destroyed trust that was hard won or whatever it might be. So number 15, Guile is a science, or rather a diabolical deformity, bereft of truth, and thinking it can escape the notice of many. So isn't that interesting? You know, guile uh, is a science that, you know, a person can learn how to use it uh, in such a way as to manipulate the circumstances around them. And uh, calling it a diabolical deformity is right. You know, it's rooted in he who is the father of lies. And where a person is not living truthfully, uh, but living in this kind of dark, uh, darkness and falsehood, then uh, they begin to try to uh, make these lies work to their advantage. And the distortion there for them is that they think nobody notices it, nobody sees it. Uh, so they become blind, uh, they're blind to the tr truth themselves. And there's this uh, perspective of themselves as being clever. Uh, you know, a person who often uh, is like one of the ones described in paragraph 13, 
either the angry or sarcastic man, you know, that they can believe that they see these circumstances in this kind of clever way and they can manipulate those circumstances in such a way that it works to their advantage. But they aren't as clever as they imagine themselves to be. You know, the humble one who lives in the truth is going to be able to see those things and avoid them like the plague and not be, you know, easily gaslit or manipulated uh, by them. And uh, and so, uh, but I think John's point is a, a good one, you know, that uh, this guile brings, you know, darkness into the lives of others, but most of all into the person who struggles with it. You know, they think they have, uh, you know, an eye for the truth about reality uh, when in, in fact they lack it all together. Hypocrisy is a contrary state of body and soul interwoven with every kind of subterfuge. So rather than living in a state that is directed toward God, where our whole self, you know, we've talked about as human beings being in a constant state of receptivity through all of our senses. And if we, you know, have a pure heart and we are living in, in humility, then our experience of the world is going to be more truthful. And we are going to be able to make our way forward toward God, uh, regardless of what our experience in life is. Uh, but hypocrisy, uh, you know, is this contrary state of body, that there is this kind of fragmentation of mind and uh, contradictory desires and wants within the same person that sort of pulls them apart. And, uh, and I think on some level we've ex experienced that, you know, just day-to-day -day life can do that to us at times uh, where we become hyper-focused upon the things in our, our life and they, where they take on this value that becomes subtly distorted and fill, fill us with anxiety and how easily our minds and our hearts can feel fragmented by that, especially if we lose sight of God. Because all of a sudden, if we're wrapped up in this frenetic activity and we become more and more busy at work trying to hold all these things together, what happens is that internally, we become more and more agitated, our, our thoughts become fragmented, we no longer can see uh, the, the truth clearly. And so we can be doing things simultaneously that are at odds with each other, or we're you know, pulling ourselves in different directions. Whereas the person who's humble and simple, is there's this clear movement toward God which, you know, I think is a simple view of the life of prayer and of Christianity, of the life of faith as a whole, Live, moving toward God or living one's life uh, in this direction toward the Lord and moving toward him always. And our lack of simplicity or and this hypocrisy that arises out of guile uh, 
keeps us from being able to do that. We've talked about this in a simple way uh, with um, infatuation. You remember the definition uh, of infatu infatuation? Infatuous, false light. And uh, that there was that optical illusion in the desert that when people were lost, they would see a light off in the distance. And so they would want to run towards it, you know, to find safety, warmth, uh, comfort in numbers. But being an optical illusion, they're going off in the wrong direction completely and becoming more and more lost. And that can be happen to us as well, you know, that we become infatuated with our, you know, own view of life or our own perspective on things, what we want. And so are expending a lot of energy, but going off into a direction that leads us nowhere and certainly not to the, the goal or the end that we imagined it would. Any thoughts before moving on? Okay. Number 17. Guilelessness is a joyous state of soul far removed from all ulterior motive. So uh, this we've already talked about this a little bit, that you know, that we aren't calculating, that we aren't engaging others with these ulterior motives that are often self-seeking, that we are seeking the truth and what is best, not simply for ourselves, but for the other. And uh, this, again, this is why um, St. Isaac would say, you know, when we encounter someone who does fall into sin, that, you know, our motive should not be to humiliate them or to expose them but to cloak them to cover them and to protect them and not to uh seek this again this position of emotional power within a relationship to elevate ourselves above others or at their expense and so you know it's hard maybe for us to imagine what it would be like to live without any ulterior motives in our lives not to be self-seeking, but really seek what is good and what is for, you know, what is according to God's will, but is what is what is good for the other. Rory. Can you give me some examples of how we can protect other people? Well, you know, one one simple one is re remaining quiet, not uh, giving voice to uh, the things that we see or know, uh, you know, this tail-bearing uh, about others and what they are doing uh, to, you know, that can elevate us in the eyes of others just because we know something that others don't know. And so when we tell, you know, tell them about it, then, uh, we're sort of elevated in their eyes, you know, because we're sharing with them something that they didn't know before about another person or what they're doing. But it also can be uh, this this way that we are diminishing the other person uh, by doing that. So remaining silent uh, and protecting the dignity of the other 
and to pray for them or to do penance on their behalf uh, in order that they might be strengthened with whatever it is that they are, are struggling with in their day-to-day -day life. I was reading something from, oh gee, I wish I could re remember what work it was from, uh, but it was talking about uh, the priest when uh, he consumes the remainder of what is within the chalice of the of the precious blood and body of our Lord. And if you know how the uh, prosphora, the bread is prepared before the liturgy, there is a whole rite that is that takes place of um, in the cutting up of what is called the lamb, uh, uh, Christ, and but also uh, as you cut it up into pieces, each of the pieces has a particular intention tied to it. And so often, the, you know, there are all these saints that you you pray for with the with particular pieces of the prospera, but then you pray for all the needs of, you know, your bishop, your ordaining bishop, and then, uh, and then everybody that has intentions that's asked you, have asked you to pray for them, as well as then praying for all the dead. Uh, and so the, the discus, uh, the patent, if you will, in the Latin rite, uh, with all the particles, then is put, they're all put into the chalice uh, uh, after the consecration and before the distribution of communion. But after the liturgy is over, the priest then consumes all that is remaining at the side altar. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was reading, I think, I don't know if it was from a saint or not, but he was saying that you know, the priest does not do that in an abstract way. It's not like he's just cleaning the dishes or cleaning up the leftovers, but those intentions, those petitions are real and the burdens that are a part of them as, as well and the burdens that people are carrying that you're praying for are united to Christ and placed within that chalice. And you're consuming all of that and taking that uh, into yourself. And uh, that often priests, you know, this author was saying, will feel a kind of illness after it, you know, experiencing on a spiritual level, the, the weight of those realities, of those spiritual realities. And it was a striking notion, because I think even priests can become abstracted or treat the celebration of the divine liturgy as a task uh, to be fulfilled rather than a mystery into which we are being drawn and uh, the paschal mystery. And again, not in an abstract way, but in the most personal way of all. And the, the one who's celebrating it in, in this deeply personal way uh, that all these intentions that include the sufferings and the trials of others then he, you know, as he offers these over to Christ, he's also uh, uh, in persona Christi, if you will, consuming them, uh, taking them within himself uh, as in a sense of taking responsibility for them.
to help carry the burden of them spiritually and to continue to intercede uh, for the individuals for, for whom these prayers have been offered. So it's a, a quite extraordinary thing that, uh, uh, you know, talk about being far removed from ulterior motive, uh, that here you're desiring only to take upon yourself the burden of the other. You know, it, it, and you, you can understand why there is such a need for prayer and a depth of asceticism. Because if you're focused upon yourself, especially as a priest, how, how is it that one would do that or even be aware of the calling to do that? That they would love their people and those that they pray with, pray for with such depth that they experience their trials as their own. So there, this is where part of where what guilelessness leads us to, that we're, our only motive is love. Uh, number 18. Honesty is unmeddling thought, sincere character, frank and unpremeditated speech. Wow, a lot in that. So honesty, unmeddling thought that, uh, you know, that we are not inserting ourselves into the life of others and their affairs. And this can be a pretty strong desire on our part, uh, you know, to know what others are doing and why. What do you have going on today or where are you going and why, you know, we want to insert ourselves or if they're struggling with something to insert ourselves into that as if to fix it. And typically we end up making it worse, but we, we should really be praying for the other and lifting up whatever there is they're struggling with, not meddling in their life or their spiritual life. This is a big thing, you know, I think to tell people, you know, what they should or should not be doing uh, spiritually or to, you know, to judge whether or not they're, they're praying enough when we would have no idea whatsoever. Sincere character. So, you know, again, we're not acting out of this hypocrisy, you know, a mask that we are putting on of religiosity and piety uh, that we want others to see. Uh, but uh, as those who truly desire what is good for the other. And then frank and unpremeditated speech. Uh, and so the way that we engage others uh, should be with, with this kind of simplicity that we aren't overthinking or overanalyzing what it is that we want to say. You know, it's one one thing to sit back and say, okay, what do I really think about that? And to offer something with clarity. It's another thing to be, again, to uh, have premeditated speech. You know, we are calculating how another might hear something or, or that we're trying to get them to do something in the way that we want them to do it. 
And again, that, that might not be certainly guided by love, uh, but rather by the desire to control or not to have to bear with the weakness of character of others or their fault, faults or failings. And maybe not even faults or failings. It's just, you know, when they don't want to do things in the way that we want them done. Victor writes, my pastor often speaks about respecting boundaries. Right. You know, I think um, this unmeddling thought captures that, that we aren't inserting ourselves in a way that we really should not in a person's affairs and life. It's one thing to be asked, you know, counsel by a friend or a confidant. It's another thing to be inserting ourselves into a person's life because we happen to overhear something. And that, it happens a lot. And you know where it happens a lot? In church, you know. Tell something to a religious person and it spreads around the church pretty quickly. So, let's see here. That, that was number 18. Number 19. Innocent is he whose soul is in its natural purity as it was created and who makes intercession for all. So in their kind of natural purity that we, you know, have removed ourselves from the experience of the passions and living our lives rooted in them and controlled by them. And so our experience begins to grow of being immersed in the things that are of God and of love. And this begins to alter the soul and to restore a, a kind of innocence to it. And certainly we're called to something even greater than that in Christ. And then he says, who makes intercession for all? And so part of that purity uh, is that we've let go of, of ego as well. And so we are making intercession for all, and we are not judging others, even by what they see, or even if we see a direct sin that is committed, that we intercede on their behalf, knowing, as the fathers tell us, that people fall most of the time because of the de demons that are attacking them. And so we must not be tempted, you know, to uh, fall into this harsh judgment of the other, but rather move quickly to intercede on their behalf. Rory, did you have another question or did you just leave your hand up? Chance, could you look at the chat message from Father Marty and make oh, a comment? Okay. I'm sorry, I'm, I must have missed it. I did. I'm sorry, Father Marty. I've often been struck by this saying. It was said of Abba Marcarius the Great that he became, according to the writings, a god on earth. That's right, I remember that. Because in the way God protects the world, so Abba Marcarius would hide the faults he saw uh, as though he had not seen them, 
and the faults he heard about as though he had not heard them. Exactly, it's the perfect quote for what we're talking about, you know, to uh, act as if one has not seen or heard those things. And this does require a kind of holy innocence, you know, that again, there isn't this desire for the diminishment of the other. And so there isn't this quick movement in the mind and the heart to take hold of something that we see another person having done or said. Thank you. I'm sorry I missed that. Uh, it gets pushed up the chat message sometimes when a bunch come in. Abba Marcaris, uh, although his homilies are sometimes, I think they're uh, attributed to another, but those would be another interesting set of readings to, to look at too. So that brings us to, to 8.30. And I, again, I don't want to rush uh, through these steps because as you can see, there's a lot in each, each little saying for us to attend to. Okay. Thank you, as always, for the great questions, comments, as always, beautiful, and uh, have a wonderful week, everybody. Keep me in your prayers, and know that I'm always praying for you, too, especially that liturgy. Okay. When we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.